Well, it's so good to be with all of you this weekend as we continue uh, the incredible privilege of being able to dive into the story of God, the scriptures that reveal to us the wonders of who he is and who we are because of him. And that is an awesome thing. So this weekend, uh, sort of across uh, our nation uh, for the national church, uh, this is a weekend on the church calendar that we have set aside uh, to remember, to be made aware, to be drawn back in to the realities of caring for children from hard places. So because that is such a massive global crisis, the church uh, in, the, in the years past have set aside an entire weekend each year to say, we are going to stop everything on this particular weekend and we are going to be drawn in to being stirred up for the sake of children from hard places so that we as the church, as followers of Christ, can engage in their stories. So the idea this weekend is that we are made aware and then we are invited to participate in the story of redemption in the lives of children from hard places. That's the intent of this weekend. And I've got to say, coming into this weekend, this particular year, on this particular day, felt a teeny tiny bit weird considering the week we've just come out of, right? For those of you that may not know, there was an election that took place, and our president-elect was chosen, right? And it was a super weird one. You see, it doesn't matter where you land from a political vantage point. This election, I think at least in my lifetime, was one of the most intense, polarizing, super strange elections I've ever seen in my life, right? It doesn't matter if you're super excited and very hopeful or scared out of your mind and completely hopeless. It was still a weird election. And so this week, because of the reality that happened and because of everything that has taken place, it has left us as a nation, I think, very uncertain and, and, and very weirded out and, and not really sure. Are we supposed to be happy or sad? I don't really know anymore. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I don't really know anymore. Most people I talk to do not have a sense of certainty coming out of this particular election, right? And so really, you know what you feel like doing this week? It's not jumping into the realities of caring for children from hard places and being stirred up to engage in mission. You want to kind of gather around the fire and cry a bit, you know? Like, are we going to be okay? Are we going to be okay? And, and bring the gospel to bear on the realities of the uncertainties that we're about to walk into, depending on where you land. Frankly, it doesn't matter where you land. It's still uncertain, right? And so we're walking instead into Orphan Weekend. And then it dawned on me. There could not be a more appropriate weekend to walk into coming out of this strange week than this one. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because this weekend, perhaps more than any other in the year, decisively shouts at us as the church, this is your job description, this is your calling, this is what you were made for, and that is completely, unapologetically certain. So in a uncertain reality in an uncertain environment with uncertain future, this weekend slams into us and goes, I'll tell you what I'm totally certain about. I'm totally certain about this, that prior to the election that took place this week, your job description as a Christ follower was exactly the same as it is today. I'm totally certain of this, that prior to those two candidates making themselves known as candidates, your job was exactly the same then, a few months ago, as it is today. 
In fact, I am totally certain of this, that prior to the president before this one and the one before that one and the one that came before that one and the one before that one, in fact, before the very first president of the United States of America was ever voted into office, the Christ followers on this planet had exactly the same job description as you and I have today. That has not changed. And so this weekend gives us the opportunity to divert our eyes from the uncertainties, the fears, the realities we face. Uh, It diverts our eyes from putting too much hope in a political candidate or too little hope in a political candidate, to be too fearful or to be too hopeful. It takes all of that off the table and it goes, let's get back to what's certain. Let's get back to what matters. Because here's the deal. Which candidate comes into office doesn't change my job description or yours as a Christ follower one bit. And it also doesn't change our ability to do it. Did you know that? It doesn't matter how bad or how good it gets. Our ability to fulfill the job description we have as Christ followers remains exactly as possible in any environment, with any circumstances and any reality. And that's pretty awesome. So the big question is, what on earth is our job description? What is our calling as Christ followers? Well, thankfully, God made that abundantly clear in Scripture, right? Uh, He made it clear in our very original created purpose, and He made it clear in the redemptive story that He affected through Jesus Christ and the gospel He gave us. So we were created with the purpose to know God fully, to experience all the wonder of God, and to be completely freed and fulfilled by that wonder, and then to make God known to all all of the world, shouting the wonders of God to each other as human beings and to all of creation. We lost that privilege in the Garden of Eden when we chose our own destiny, our own divinity, our own future, and that got derailed. But by God's grace, in the beautiful collision with the gospel of Jesus Christ and his great redemptive work on the cross and in his resurrection, that purpose was restored to us. And so you and I, as Christ followers who have collided with the gospel, we know our purpose is simple on this planet. Through every relationship, through every circumstance, through every resource reality that we encounter, it is our privilege and our calling to see what it is about God we can know in those circumstances. Are the circumstances beautiful? Wonderful. What can you know of God? Are the circumstances terrible? Fine. What can you know of God? See, in everything we do, we are driven to know God more. And then as we know God more, we are called to make God known through the active actions of our life. And we make him known. So that's this general giant calling. Make God known and know God. Awesome. But what does that practically look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, there's many different ways that it looks like, but I'll tell you what. On occasion throughout Scripture in both the Old and New Testament, there are these moments where I think God is communicating these giant, wondrous things, and then he just goes, listen, listen, listen. He says to a prophet or he says to an author of the New Testament, just write this sentence down. I just want to boil it all down, simplify it all, and make it super clear for everybody. So he says things like this. You know what God wants from you, right? He'll start a sentence like that. And when God starts a sentence like that, you know what he wants from you, right? We ought to go, no, but I'm super curious. Or he says things like this. You know, the kind of thing God loves most is, and then we should pay attention to that, right? So one of those encounters is in the Old Testament with the prophet Micah. 
God is revealing wonderful things to Micah, a lot of things about Israel and the realities of who they are and destruction things and other things. And suddenly, out, out of nowhere, in the, in the weaving of this beautiful story, God does this little thing with Micah. He, he goes, tell, tell them, tell them. They know what I want from them. Just tell them. Make it simple so they're not confused. Okay, listen to this. Here it is. You ready? This is in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. In Micah 6, 8, uh, God says these words to the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. (gasps) Isn't that awesome? Are you curious? You ought to be. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. And the next question should be, all right, Renaud, what is it? Did he tell us? He sure did. Take a look. To do justly, to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, depending on the translation, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And then the next sentence is about destruction and stuff. So it's, it's, it's like, it's, that's it. There, there is no more after that. It's not like he goes, here are the 47 things that I think should matter. He just goes like this. You, you know what God requires of you, right? You, you got it, right? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's it. That's it. Go do that. So what does that really mean? To do justly. To find what is wrong in the world. To find what is wrong in our homes, what is wrong in our neighborhoods, what is wrong in our communities, what is wrong in our nation, what is wrong in the world. To find the injustice, the things that should not be, the things that are broken, the things that are not working, and to do something about it. It's simple. Go do justly. Go affect justice in places where there is injustice. Go do that. And then our tendency as human beings, right, is as we go and do justly in, an, in, in a space of injustice, we can very quickly become cynical and become full of arrogance, can't we? Oh my gosh, the world is so terrible. Oh, the people are so terrible. Everybody's injustice is so terrible. But thankfully, I'm doing something about it. And so what does he say next? I want you to go do justly, but I want you to always love mercy or kindness If you're going to do justly, don't do it out of a sense of obligation or fight. I mean, we do this a lot, right? You you see this in the political arena a lot. I mean, we get up and we fight all the bad, evil people. And we go do stuff. We're like picketing. And we're like, and I'm like, that's not merciful. That's not kind. That's agenda driven. And it's terrible. And it doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't help. But he says, no, 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 no. Go make what is wrong right, but do it with kindness and mercy out of a heart of loving the world, not hating the world. And then he says this, and don't ever forget that you're not actually doing it. Like, you're not the God that's going to go out and save the day. That's actually God who's going to do that. So walk what? Humbly with your God. Remember that you are a participant in the story of redemption. You are not the redeemer. And you get to be part of this, but it's not your job. And so you get to participate with Jesus, not do it for Jesus. So walk humbly with your God. Remember who you are. Be grateful that you're part of it, but don't think too much of yourself because then it gets everything derailed. Beautiful. 
It's so simple. In the New Testament, God did the same thing to a man named James. James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem during the early New Testament church, he writes a letter to the scattered church. It's the early, early New Testament church. So Peter has just been arrested, and James, the other James, the disciple of Jesus, just got his head chopped off by Herod. And so the church is feeling a little scattered and a little scared because the Roman Empire is rising up against the gospel, and they're thinking, maybe we lose. And so James writes what we know is the very first letter to the the church. And in this very first letter, James says, I'm going to tell you exactly what it looks like to live out the realities of who you are, right? To, to live out your job description. And God does the same thing with James as he did to Micah. He gets to a certain place and he goes, tell him, tell him, just tell him real simple what it is I love when you're living out your religious life, the life that follows me. Here's what I love. Okay. James chapter one, verse 27. Here's what God says through James. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, ooh, pay attention now, that's big, this is what God loves, is this, to visit or to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's no more about that. The, the next sentence is, my brothers, show no partialities. This is a different topic. So again, it's this absolute simplicity. You, 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 know, what, you know what God loves, Right? You know what he loves when you're living your life out as a Christ follower? He loves when you take care of children from hard places. He loves when you take care of people that are, that are afflicted. And he loves when you don't pay attention to the stupidity of the culture and buy into their ideologies that say, pursue comfort and convenience. It's awesome. It'll make you happy. Stay unstained from the world and pay attention to what God has called you into. This is our job description. So here's what we're going to do today. Despite the election and all the uncertainties that come with that, and despite where you may land on that, how fearful or hopeful you are, here's what we're going to do. We're going to all come together, and we are going to fix our eyes on the beauty of our calling in Christ and stay grounded on what is certain, and then we're going to go do that. So we're going to listen in today to some of the realities that are this redemptive process of engaging in children from hard places. And we want you to get a realistic view of what that means. And so to do that, we have extracted from our midst some of the stories of people that have experienced this. And we get to share some of those stories with you. Now, it's fun for us because in our midst, right across that lobby over there, throughout the weekend, we have hundreds and hundreds of children that were born into families in this church. And we have hundreds and hundreds of children that entered families through adoption in this church. Isn't that cool to say? We have hundreds of born children and hundreds of adopted children and both legitimately entered forever families one way or the other. And so because of that, we have many stories that we can extract and say, you want to know what it's like to step into children from hard places in their lives? Well, we can show you. So the first story we're going to listen into is a story of some of my dearest friends, the Wells and what their journey in adoption felt like and looked like, and what you'll notice in this, is that there's a lot of beauty in it, but at the same time, it doesn't come easy. And when you step into the world of doing what God has called, you're going to find there's a lot of beauty in it, but it doesn't come easy. Take a look at this story. Me and Mariana grew up when we were little girls, you know, we never had like childhood. Like she was my family, I was her, you know, we grew up. Taking care of yourself yeah. a lot. Yeah, and we believe in God since we were little girls. Yeah. So we always knew like God was always with us no matter what. I remember when we like have hard times and we didn't have food or anything. We always like sing those Christian little, you know, little kids song. And 
always something come up and God always help us. We got took, took away, take, took away, taken away, taken away when I was 10 and Mariana was eight years old. Um, so we didn't know what's going on, where we're gonna get place, and they told us they're just gonna take us to the hospital to make sure we're okay. And we were hoping our parents gonna come back to bring us back home, but nobody came. And then one lady, she was a Christian lady, she came to us and she told us about this um, like orphan orphanage, it calls Father's House, it's a Christian organization. It's like summer camp. Yeah, summer camp. And that's when how our life changed. Yeah, uh, we start get to know God more, and they told us more like how to go over, like forgive, and just move on with our lives. Don't be mad at our parents. And she told us we have a hope to get another family who gonna love us, and that's how, we, how everything starts. So um, we decided to bring them over for the summer, a, a hosting program. They were here for almost two months. Just so that they could see what our life was like, so they could um, meet the rest of the, the kids. And um, well, so hopefully they would uh, fall in love with us and, and uh, us with them and we'd have some common ground. Shell and I, we, we were already um, knew we wanted to pursue the girls with a formal adoption, but we realized the girls, at the time they were 14 and 16, they had to make that decision as well. I remember one talk when you guys asked us, because um, we thought you were just hosting us, you know, we wasn't sure if you're gonna like adopt us, and I remember when we had this first talk in the living room, mm -hmm. we sit down and you like, uh, do you guys feel like you wanna be part of our family? So we're like, what do you guys mean? And you explained to us. Mm -hmm. And then I remember how it was like hard to give an answer because you know, you know, it's gonna scary. be it's scary mm -hmm. and it's totally different. one month or how long was day? It wasn't enough. Right. You know, to get to know each other and True. change your life completely. And having like not having family and then start having one, it's a big difference. So after the five weeks of hosting the girls, we sat them down and had a conversation with them and all of our other kids and told them that we felt like God was calling us to move forward with an adoption, but that we knew that would be a huge change for them. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to know what their thoughts were on that. And they both were very hesitant um, that they realized, I think, even at 16 and 14, that that was going to be... Um, you know, huge for their lives. And um, I think sometimes people that look in at adoption always think, oh, it's so wonderful and beautiful, and, and it is, but there's a lot of hard in that too. And um, I think we realized it after that summer that, you know, there, there were gonna be some hard times ahead. And the girls also realized that. So we told them to go back and to pray about it, that they didn't have to make a decision right then and there. When they called back and said they wanted to move forward, we were excited, but at the same time, we were like, wow, this is huge, you know, this is big. And um, so... Well, you're, you're adding to the family, you know, two more people, but you're also realizing, you know, we at, we're asking the girls to make a decision that really a 16 and 14 year old shouldn't have to make, no. right? And realizing, you know, the impact of that is, is, is pretty staggering. It's very hard for us to make the decision because we 
we were thinking a lot and then yeah one day yeah. I said yes then and another then another day, day I say no <laughs> and then next day she's like no we should and it's like no it's gonna be hard because it's totally different different world different language everything's different like the, the, their life are totally different than Ukrainian life like totally different so you know we we understood that it's gonna be hard for us but but we pray, we pray, and then we ask God help us to make the decision, and then we felt like I think we should do it. You know, when we got here, I think things were somewhat settled in the beginning. They always say with adoption that you go through a honeymoon period, mm -hmm. you know, like right. everybody's on the honeymoon, and we did, but it didn't last real long, and then things started to get hard. hard. It, it was different than you can, we came here for a vacation. You right, know, here right. everybody is working, so you don't get. Of course, we had a lot of attention, but it was different because everybody works. You know, kids have school, and we just came in the middle of the school year. We couldn't go to school because we didn't know any language. We couldn't do any school work because we didn't know. You know, so and then we had to learn all those basics, numbers and English. You know, those little thinking, and you know, inside of you, you feel like maybe I'm stupid or what. Like, I felt so. It was like weird feeling inside because you didn't feel normal not like everybody else mm -hmm. and people will look at you you know and you don't really understand what people saying about you and you want to talk to them but you can and I think it's a good thing that we have each other we have opposite personalities so I think it helps so one day when she had difficult like she felt bad or like she have yeah I had like but I had like bad day, you know, for me, like it's hard, you know, she would always find the right word, world, words to, you know, to say it's okay, everything's gonna be fine, you know, and the most important thing we together, you know what I mean, so she, she always like, you know, like a fire in my life. Yeah, and thanks God we didn't get separated, because a lot of kids when they get adopted, Sibling because yeah, they're separate. getting separate. So we were so thankful that we stayed together. I think when we were looking at adopting teenage girls, we thought we were going to be dealing with rebellion. You know, most teenagers rebel against parents, and I thought that's what we would deal with. And we were very surprised to find out that we were dealing with more rejection. And um, that was was hard to, to uh, get our brains around. But we still have like some hard days right sure, sure. we yeah. all go through them but i feel we're getting closer to each other and i think we're getting more trust to each other and our communication getting better um what's really cool is that i feel like we've had a front row seat to god's redemptive work mm -hmm. um seeing god restore things that i thought were lost forever and i mean there was definitely times in our journey that i didn't have hope for our future like i didn't feel like things were going to get better and yet the good things that are here now are I know because of God's um, healing on our family. That first year was so hard I, I just I want to block that year out of my life. Renault said many times God never calls you to easy and now I mean I, I love our girls I love our family I can't imagine our life without all six of our kids and how it's turned out it, it's just absolutely amazing and I look forward to and there is optimism, right, about where where we're going as a family. Um, and there's more than hope, more than hope.
You know, it's an extraordinary thing to listen to a story like that and hear the girls in the beginning of the video say that when we were little, I was 10, she was eight, we were pulled from our parents and said we're going to the hospital for a quick checkup. And then from the hospital, a woman told us we're going to summer camp. And then we went to summer camp and it turned out to be an orphanage. And then we lived there and they told us, forgive your parents, don't worry about it, you'll find a new family. And because that's the reality from which children come from a lot of times in hard places, we, we have this naivety that says that when the children come home to us and we engage in their lives, that there's going to be this romantic wonder of like, oh my gosh, they're going to discover the rescue that we can bring to them and all is going to be wonderful in the world and they're just going to love us and we're going to love them and it's going to be a fairy tale of a story. And it does not go that way. It, it, I, I, I have never heard of a story that actually goes that way in the area of engaging with children from hard places. People often say to us in our adoption journey, oh my gosh, your children are so lucky. And then I go, no, they're not. No, they're not. They grew up in environments of hard trauma. They were torn from places they should never have been torn from. They've had to grapple with realities they should never have had to grapple with as kids. They were pulled out of a country that was their own and a space that they understood and a language that was theirs and thrown into an environment where they're behind and they're scared and, they're, and, and, and they don't know what's going on and they, they're thrown to adults and the adults say, call me mommy and daddy. And we go, they're lucky. aren't they lucky? No, they're, they're not lucky. That is a terrible scenario. And we forget that when we're called into the incredible calling that God has given us, we are called into a space where the kingdom of God, the redemptive realities of the kingdom of God, the light, life, and freedom of God collide with the kingdom of this world and all of the brutality that it brings with it. And remember that the world did not love the light, nor did you, nor did I, when we first encounter it. So we don't only encounter darkness with light and death with, with life and bondage with freedom, but we encounter a darkness that hates the light, and we are supposed to imagine that that's going to go super well. I think we have this romanticized idea that year one is really hard, like Ty said, and then year two a little bit better, and year three a little bit better, and year four a little bit better, and so on. And so you go through an initial hardship, and then it gets better, and then you get the wonderful redemption at the end of the story. But I don't think that's how it goes at all. You know, Michelle said something in the video that struck me the first time I saw the video. She said, you know, I've realized we have gotten a front seat to the redemptive story of God. Did you hear her say that? Doesn't that sound beautiful? That sound beautiful? A front row seat to the redemptive work of God. If God came to you today and said, you can get a front row seat to the redemptive work of God, who wouldn't raise their hand on that one? I mean, who wouldn't say, yes, a front row seat to the redemptive work of God. I want that, right? That's because we have a misguided view of what it means to have a front row seat to the redemptive work of God. Let me tell you about a person that had a front row seat to the redemptive work of God. And when I say front row seat, I mean probably the front row seat, okay? It was a young woman. She lived in a fairly small town. In fact, it was a very small town. The town is Nazareth, and her name is Mary. She was in her late teens. She was going about her business, and an angel literally encountered her story and said to Mary, listen, <laughs> this sounds crazy, but God has chosen you of all the generations and of all the people that he would, in your womb, supernaturally create a child who is going to be born the savior of planet Earth. He is going to be God in flesh and blood, and you are going to carry him, birth him, and be his mother on this planet. Isn't that awesome? 
I mean, talk about a front row seat to the redemptive process. You are going to actually have the baby who's going to save the human race in your womb and birth that baby. Wow, and be his mom. Super incredible, until she had to tell Joseph that she was pregnant. That was not probably pretty, was it? In fact, we know that Joseph, when he found out she was pregnant, didn't buy into the whole supernatural thing. And he was like, and that's not how it works. And he was going to quietly divorce her until an angel showed up for Joseph and said, you can't do that. She is legit. She's telling the truth. You got to believe her. So Joseph did. And then Joseph and Mary had to watch that pregnancy unfold in a very, very small town. They don't tell us in the Bible about how awkward that was, but can you imagine? I mean, you, you got pictures of that. Small little town, people, pregnant woman, engaged but not married. And in that environment, are you kidding me? That must have been a brutal journey. And then Mary and Joseph head off to Bethlehem to go register. They get to Bethlehem. And people are so busy in Bethlehem that they don't even bother noticing a woman in labor, let alone a woman carrying the very Messiah, the Son of God himself, in a mother's womb, and they don't even notice. They shove her into a back cave somewhere so she can give birth in a cave on a cold evening. And it's not beautiful, and it's not wondrous, and it's messy, and it's crazy. And though there is true beauty in that moment, so beautiful, in fact, that we celebrate it every single year at a time called Christmas, it is not a pretty story and a pretty picture. And then what? How does it go from there? Front row seat to redemption. Front row seat. Here it is, right? Herod finds out there's a baby born who's going to be king. So he sends his soldiers out to slaughter thousands and thousands of children under the age of two looking for Jesus. And an angel tells Mary and Joseph, don't go back to Nazareth where your family is and your support system is and all the people that love you and where you're going to raise your child like you were raised. No, no, no. go to Egypt. Well, what's in Egypt? Nobody you know, nothing you know, don't worry. Some guys from the Far East will bring some riches that can fund your trip. But, but we don't know anybody in Egypt. Sorry, sorry, but that's where you gotta go. Yeah, that, that sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Front row seat to redemption. The next time we encounter Jesus, he's 12 years old. He's in a temple. Oh, the wisdom of this 12-year-old. Extraordinary, isn't it? Sharing the works of God with those in the temple. Beautiful to all of us, except for who? Mary. Not beautiful to her. Remember what happened to Mary? She's on the road heading back. Jesus is lost. Have you ever lost a child before? I've lost a child on the beach, three years old. I lost her for like 40 minutes. It is still some of the darkest moments of my memory. When a parent loses a child, that is no joke. You think Mary walked into the temple and was like, Jesus, what? Doing the work of the father, doing the work of the father. Oh, oh, well, you should have just said that. That's cool then. I mean, my heart attack that I just had on the road, totally appropriate for you to do the work of the father. No, that was not a pretty moment for Mary. But don't worry, front row seat to redemption. Oh, it gets better. After Jesus' baptism, do you know that Mary, as she travels with Jesus, first encounter that Jesus has is in the town of Nazareth, right? Hometown, beautiful stuff. Preaches there out of Isaiah, says the Messiah has come. Do you know what the people of Nazareth try to do to Jesus? Do you remember this? They try to shove him off a cliff. No joke. He had to actually supernaturally disappear so that they would not shove him off a cliff. You're like, I never heard that. Go read it. It's in the Gospels. They try to kill him day one. And Mary was there. Front row seat to redemption. You know what the next few years looks like? Three years of the life of Jesus? Yes. Scattered into those three years are miraculous moments. Don't get me wrong. Beautiful moments, as is always true when you have a front row seat to redemption. Scattered into the story are beautiful, miraculous moments. But you know what's in between the healing of the blind and the healing of the sick and the raising of the dead? You know what's in between that? 
long arguments with the Pharisees as they try to trick him into spaces where they can get him arrested or get him beaten or get him sent away. He is, they try to stone him. They try to kill him. They try to throw him off cliffs. People demand massive amounts from Jesus. If he doesn't do what they say, they're ticked off. They're mean and they're spiteful. The disciples are insane. They constantly are fighting and fussing over who gets what from Jesus. And Mary has a front row seat to that. Do you know what else Mary had a front row seat to, by the way? Jesus, as he grew in his fame and fortune, not fortune, actually, he had zero fortune, but in his fame, you know what happened? He started becoming known as the man who is probably the Messiah, who would set his people free. Do you know how that goes in the Roman government? Every other zealot before Jesus that had risen up into power to overthrow the Roman government, do you know what happened to them? They were crucified. Now, that was not going to happen to Jesus because he was supernaturally conceived in his mother's womb and he was God, the God of the universe in flesh and blood. But as a mother, that had to be stirring in you, shouldn't it? Oh my gosh, what happens if it doesn't go well? What happens if it's not the way we think it's going to go? What happens if he doesn't go into Jerusalem? What happens if he dies at the hands of the terrible Romans? That must have been a fear lingering with her every single day. She was there when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey. Front row seat to redemption. As he heads into town, people laying down palms. But that same week, another group of people in that same city ended up strategically tricking things and shaping things and were violent enough that they got Jesus to be arrested. Mary was there when Jesus found himself on the other side of the Roman government arrested and sent to the high priest. Mary had a front row seat to the reality of Jesus' trial as he was convicted of crimes he did not commit. Mary was there. Front row seat to redemption. When soldiers took whips called the cat's tails, nine strings with bones on the end of them, designed so that when you beat somebody, the bones tear into the back on your sides, your rib cage and your back. And when you pull back, it just rips flesh off body. She got a front row seat watching that happen to her son. Waiting for the miracle. Waiting for the beauty where Jesus gets up from that moment and wipes everybody off the planet that's trying to hurt him. But he never did. There's a scene in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It's perhaps one of my favorite scenes. In fact, it is my favorite scene. It's a scene where Jesus, after being beaten by the soldiers and being torn apart and the crown of thorns on his head and blood running down his face, he is carrying a cross, a giant heavy beam with splinters and wood laying on his back and he's carrying it up the road to the skull where they were gonna crucify him. And he trips and falls. If you've seen the movie, you remember the scene. And Mary, his mother, is standing down a courtyard and she has this flashback memory of him as a little boy as he's running and he trips and falls and she runs as fast as she can to him. And as she's running to him, as she gets down on her knees to get to him, it flashes from the flashback she's having back to reality. And instead of a little boy in her arms, it is the man Jesus with blood streaming down his face as the cross had fallen on him and you literally could feel the bones crushing. And Jesus turns to her and he says to her, I have come to make all things new. Can you imagine the brutality that that must have been to a heart of a mom staring into the eyes of her son as he's saying, I've come to make all things new, laying under a cross, bleeding to death. Front row seat to redemption, that is. And then she had to stand by while she heard the hammers knocking those nails through his wrists and his ankles as he screamed in anguish. Front row seat to redemption. She had to be there when they raised the cross and she heard Jesus shout, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
front row seat to redemption. You think all that's bad? Do you want to know what hopelessness is? I'll tell you what hopelessness is. When a mom who believed the supernatural child that was born from her body that God had conceived in her womb, and she knew it was true because she was the one that went through it, had to, had to wonder for a few moments, a few days, is it true that even God himself cannot overthrow the Roman government? That the Roman government is so powerful that even when God is conceived in flesh, the Roman government overcomes that. Can you imagine what hopelessness that must have been? See, the only moment in the entire journey of getting a front seat to redemption that's truly, truly, truly unbelievable, sustainably, is what? The empty tomb. Now that's a moment. That's a moment. That's the one you want, isn't it? See, when God says, you want a front row to the redemptive story, that's what we all think it is. I get to be there at the empty tomb. Yes, you do. But before you ever get to the empty tomb, there is a very long, very hard road to get there. That's how redemption works. Because we are encountering the horror and brutality of this planet. And you know what? At that beautiful resurrection, when it all came true, and they're like, Jesus rose from the dead, and a mother's heart is soaring with all wonder, what happened after the resurrection? Well, all things were set right, and everything went hunky-dory from there. No, 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 no. Jesus left the planet 40 days later. He said, I'm, I'm, I'm heading back. I'm going to leave you with the Holy Spirit. He will empower you, and you will go into all the world and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Sound awesome, doesn't it? Do you know what happened to those guys that got the Holy Spirit and went out carrying the gospel? They were all killed, every single one of them, except for John. He was boiled in oil and survived that incident, and then he was, he was sent to the island of Patmos where he lived out his days lonely and by himself, exiled, wrote the book of Revelation there, super glad about that, but he died on the island of Patmos by himself. Yeah, does that sound beautiful to you? Does it have beauty in it? Oh, more than you can imagine, we have it right here. And the gospel birthed out of that generation from generation to generation so that we sit here free because of those people. So, oh, it's beautiful. But if you think it comes quickly, it doesn't come quickly. See, the process of redemption, I don't know how we miss this. The process of redemption is most often in the collision between God's kingdom and the world, a very long, very hard, very difficult road of lots of brutality to experience the beauty of scattered moments of redemption in between and a great moment at the end that sets all things right. That's the story. And that's what we get to be part of when we engage in the lives of children from hard places. Not a little bit of hard turning into a lot of wonder, but a lot of hard scattered with miraculous moments with an eventual hope that someday in the future, things will be made right because we engaged in making love visible. If there is a family in this church that I know that best describes the reality of engaging in children in hard places in that collision and seeing both the beauty and brutality exist in the same space every day, that it's not one to the other, it's both all the time, it is the South family. There's others, but they're the ones I know best in terms of that beautiful, unbelievable description. Scott South is 
of my very best friends. I've got two guys here, Flor and Scott, that I hang out with a bunch. We've all adopted and we all have insane lives. And, and we, we get together on a regular basis and, and we, we, we weep like men. We, we complain. That's what men do when they weep. They don't actually cry. They just go, and then after we've done that at Olive Garden over some dessert, we share the gospel with each other and we go, okay, okay, God is still good and we're gonna still do this. And then we go watch a movie to try to absorb the gospel. In a, in a beautiful way. The gospel's always in movies. It's always there. And so we do that. And, and the South family, they are engaged in an adoptive story, in the, the story of a child from a hard place that is extraordinarily beautiful and extraordinarily brutal every single day. And I want you to hear their story and see the collision between those two worlds. Watch this. Our journey had been an intense one all along. We had four girls, we were a family of six, and we definitely had our hands full. We have 13-year-old twins, an 11-year-old, and an eight-year-old. Um, when Michaela came along, um, she immediately was launched into pretty severe uh, medical issues, including surgeries right away. And, and we walked down a path that we never could have imagined of what her life would be. Um, we also had it heavy on our heart that we were being led into medical adoption. Um, it sounded crazy to people because we had so much um, in Michaela's care. We were in the middle of some crazy stuff at the time, medically, but we felt certain that um, Michaela was in a space that for the first time in her life that it made sense. We were certain that God had blessed us with what we had walked through, with the knowledge, with um, the wisdom that we had, with the experiences we had, um, with the resources we had, that we had seen so much. We, we saw so much along the way with Michaela in different places, and we just knew that there was a child that didn't have as many options because of their special needs. So we walked in pursuing that and open to that, and we jumped into the foster care classes. It was the fall of 2012 when we met our youngest daughter, Bella, for the first time at age three. The very first case study that our family was given um, by the social worker was Bella's um, case study. And I just, I remember um, getting her paper and, and seeing her face, and, and it was a grainy black and white photo, so you couldn't, you, there was, it wasn't like you could even tell how cute she was or anything, but I just remember these pigtails and these full cheeks. And I just remember it captured in my heart, and then I, I read down the paper, and because of Michaela's journey, we're very familiar with medical, and she was a GI baby, and our issues were GI. And we thought, oh, there's GI, but she had a central line, which meant that her life was dependent on IV nutrition. And because we'd walked a journey, and we, alongside other families, we knew that that was huge. And I knew that it was not up to me to close that door, um, but it just, this little girl fell into our space because she was supposed to be our daughter. To say we were overwhelmed is slightly an understatement. Realizing that she was transitioning from living in the hospital most of her life, she spent the first, most of the first few years of her life in Arnold Palmer Hospital, she uh, basically was loved and raised by the nurses and doctors there before going to medical foster home where she still went in and out of care. Um, so we were looking and saying, oh, how do we do this? You know, how do we, how do we love this little girl? We had prepared well, we understood what it was to walk into adoption, but we also had this, we've got to keep her alive every day. And, and so there was a lot of fear that came in that space. Um, uh, 
Um, we had a moment that was a really, really tough several hour ordeal in the hospital bed where Bella had been um, just struggling, crying, crying, crying in pain. And it was a space where doctors were in and out of the room and nobody knew what to do. And it, it was grim. It just felt really, really heavy. And after about four hours when things had settled and Bella was finally a little bit calm, I remember a, a different doctor and another team pulling me aside and saying, hey, I just, I just want to share this with you because I felt like it would mean something. But this doctor pulled me aside and she was blown away by the security that Bella had in her heart for her family. But this doctor was in tears and she said, I never imagined, I just never imagined. And to see that, and she's saying it with a deep sadness because of where Bella was at, but she was also saying it with this awe of knowing where she was and, and, and never imagining the level of love and security she had in her family, not just her mommy and daddy, but these grandparents that she was just, and the fact that she didn't, whoever was there, she was just crying out for prayer. Um, and so I, it was that moment you walk away from where you've watched your child suffer for many, many days. And you've watched and you walked in and out of just the wondering of what next, that God kept bringing our eyes back to look. I like, I have this, I've had her all along. I have her life, and I know the circumstance seems impossible, but what I'm doing is bigger than what you can ever imagine. And so we, the moments tumbled in that 65-day stay. I can't tell you how many um, nurses, how many uh, doctors, how many people's hearts, even those that didn't know her before, that were profoundly affected, that wanted to know her story, that could not understand the joy that was within her and the light that came from her life, and it just, more than ever allowed us to step back and, and, and just say, God, this is, it is yours. The story is yours, she is yours. And so as far as <laughs> redemption in our story, it is ongoing every day in every tiny moment of our lives um, that we see more than ever. And for us, it's looking and saying, um, the circumstance is huge. Our circumstance has not lightened up in four years. In fact, the reality of the life-threatening and level of trauma and where we're headed has only grown. And so it's really that separating of saying, I can't live in view of this. I have to live in view of who the Lord is and His goodness. And we've been able to see that in such a huge way. We're sitting in a place of great unknown, great unknown, probably the most, um, the hardest and precarious place in terms of our hearts and our engagement with Bella and what's ahead. But we are grasping more than ever the love and provision of God. And so it, it's really hard to say that because the, to, the joy of the Lord and what He gives us and what He's provided and what He's shown us, all of us and so many people around us through Bella's life is so profound. But the day-to-day -day reality is a great weight and it's hard and it's oftentimes feel so broken and you grieve and you cry and God meets you in that space in such a beautiful way because he shows you how he is changing lives and how lives have been changed and he reminds you that even though this might not be changing right now and it actually might get a lot worse he's solid and he's beautiful and he's good and what he's doing in our lives and through this little girl's life is beautiful and so that's where we find ourselves um, sitting today, uh, overwhelmed, <laughs> um, tired, uh, weary in so many ways, but 
knowing the Lord in ways that we never imagined. And even though things get harder, the depths of his love get greater. The best thing in my family is love. This morning at the uh, one of the morning gatherings, Julie, who you just heard share there, was here and listened to this story unfold. Uh, tomorrow, uh, Julie heads to Miami with Bella. Uh, they go to a team there to do a bunch of tests because uh, there is a very strong likelihood that Bella will have to have a multi-organ transplant. And that's why she was saying the future is so uncertain because the prognosis for that is, is not good. It's, it's, not, it's not great for the next five years or the next 10. These things don't go well generally. And so a, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of weight, a lot of struggle, a, a lot of bandwidth that they don't have. And so off to Miami she goes, and I stood in the lobby with um, her, and I was chatting with Julie just coming out of this video, and, and she said, you know, I know that God is in this. I know that all of that is true. I know that there is beauty and redemption that is yet to be discovered in Miami, but I, I don't want to do this. I don't want this story. Like, I don't want to go. I, I don't, I, I'm not ready for this next part. And it just, it just stirred in me such a deep and beautiful picture of Jesus in a little space that we know of as the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember this space? Where he got on his knees facing the realities of what redemption was going to look like. And he said to his father, look, here's the deal. I don't want this. I don't think I can carry this. And if you can have it pass, please, I beg you, have it pass. But your will be done. See, Jesus set the pace for us in every space, knowing exactly what it would be like if we were going to be redemptive. He knew that if you're going to engage in the story of children from hard places, you're going to find yourself on your knees in that garden many times going, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. I will tell you, even in my own story, and the story that Brooke and I, my wife, are in, we love our eight kids. It's an amazing thing. And there is beauty beyond imagination in our story. But in the dailiness, our story is harder today than it has been from the time it all began. I've got five teenagers in my house and two preteens that'll be teenagers in, in like three months. And that alone creates dynamic. And then you add to that dynamic the realities of relationships that haven't yet quite got sorted out and long histories that don't exist that we don't have with several of our children and, and wonderings about who trusts who and who's what and trying to figure out how all that works and the trauma that has come and the trauma that has been affected and the trauma that is in Brooke and I and the way our trauma affects their trauma and their trauma affects us and all of us affect each other. And now for the first time, really beginning to stir all of that up and say, where does this go? It's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. It's hard and it's difficult and it's infuriating and it's overwhelming but this, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen if we choose to follow him. Do you remember? He said, look, if you're gonna follow me, here's how it's gonna roll. Every day, you're gonna walk into a world full of injustice. Every day, you're gonna walk into a world that's broken. Every day, you're gonna walk into a world that needs redemption. And you, Jesus follower, you're gonna take up your cross and you're gonna follow me. See, Jesus came here, got in that garden, begged God to have the cross pass by, but it didn't, got onto the cross despite the weightiness of that deal and died on that cross because he knew that's what was necessary to rescue us.
And he says to us, now you get to go into the world every day and find those spaces that need redeeming. And if you take them on, I guarantee you it'll be costly. I guarantee you it'll be costly. And sometimes the weight of it will be unbearable. But in it, I will show myself strong and I will show the way to redemption. There is a guy, uh, Jason Johnson, who runs an organization that we work closely with that works in foster care and adoption nationally. And he wrote a blog this last week, actually, about counting the cost if you're going to step into foster care adoption or save families. <laughs> counting the cost. And he said that when you count the cost, you ought not only to count the cost of what it will cost if you step in, but you ought to count the cost of what it'll cost if you don't. And he writes this as one of the little pieces in that blog. Listen to this. It's so incredible. Whatever your particular situation or circumstances may be, it's possible that children from hard places need your family as much as your family needs them. It's nearly impossible to see it that way until you're in it or sometimes even when you're in it. But eventually... It becomes the place where one of the most beautiful truths about all of this is revealed. That foster care and adoption are not just the process by which we may change a child's life, but it is also the means through which God will radically transform our lives. Their story changes our lives forever, undoubtedly, even if invisibly, for the better. Perhaps that's all part of God's design in this broken world, world in how this whole thing is supposed to work. They are not supposed to be orphans. They are not supposed to be foster care systems. They are not supposed to be children from hard places. Do you know that? That is not supposed to happen. This world was not supposed to be marked by sin and death and bondage. We were not created for that. But it is the reality in which we live and it is the reality in which we find ourselves because we, the human race, chose our own path in the Garden of Eden. So now, yes, they are orphans and children from hard places. And we, the redeemed, we, the church, we, the followers of Jesus, are invited, are compelled, are called to step in and participate in bringing justice to those places of injustice. And when we pay a price for it, and we will, it is the same price that our Savior paid for us. Long, hard roads and hours in gardens begging to get out, only to die on a cross so that the full story of redemption might be realized in the resurrection. We are invited, as Paul says, to suffer with Christ as he suffered for redemption so that we might share in the great wonder of resurrection to those children from hard places. Welcome to the story of being a Christ follower. This is our privilege. This is our calling. This is our job description. So let's go do it. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for all that you have done to affect our redemption and to save our souls and to redeem our futures and to give us hope in hard places, restoring our purpose. 
Thank you for inviting us to be part of that story now on this planet where we go out and find the places that are hard and unredeemed and we choose to take on into our lives those realities. Help us, God, not to buy into the cultural ideology that says that the pursuit of comfort and convenience will lead to happiness. But help us instead to choose to love mercy and kindness and engage in justice, even if it be at the cost of comfort and convenience. May we never abandon justice and mercy at the cost of comfort and convenience. May we never choose comfort and convenience over those. Help us in the heaviness and weightiness of the redemptive process once we step into stories like the Souths and the Wells and so many others here have done. And the weight is unbearable and the uncertainties are unthinkable and we feel it be too much, too much to bear that you would whisper to our souls the stories of Mary and the disciples and so many others that got front row seats to the redemptive work and realized in that process that the front row seat wasn't always pretty, was often very hard, had long roads of difficulty so that the full wonder of the resurrection could be known. Give us sustaining power in the midst of hard, long days so that we might trust you and know you in ways we could never have imagined. Stir up in us whatever it takes to lead us into the charge of being men and women and children that do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.